Hello, hello. Hello, Tom. Are you there? <laughs> uh, yeah, you sound a little far away. Okay, let me, uh, let me put this microphone. I, w it, I wonder oh. if it's coming through your computer microphone. Yeah, all right. Oh, I know what happened. The microphone fell off my shirt. Uh, there you go. Yeah, it was yeah. hanging down between my legs. There you go. You you sounded you sounded about you know twenty feet away, and now you sound just right. Oh, good. <laughs> that there happens when the when the microphone is about eight feet away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, so golly. how you been? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. I've uh, I've recouped from the from the nice journey down south. <laughs> Yeah, when did you got, get back? Well, I got back last Saturday, actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was real busy uh, last week with work and stuff, so, you yeah. kind of took a week off there. Yeah, well, that's fine. I, <laughs> I didn't forget about you, but I sure, did sure. forget about looking at the, uh, the the questions that you had asked, and I don't even remember where we left off. <laughs> I think, well, I think, yeah, I think we were partway through uh, your career. I, I want to say we ended it... Um, at uh you i think you've wrapped up right around uh wright patterson fin like oh you, yeah um i think that's where you finished and you moved from wright patterson to uh i forget where well it's to ge that yeah that's, right uh, okay so right pat to ge and i think that's where that that's the part of your career where you started moving around the country a little bit right yeah i did okay <laughs> so i think that's yeah. where we, where we were going to pick up right yeah and i uh Every time I think about those moves that we made for GE, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, in retrospect, it, I think it might have just all been a big mistake. You know, that I mm. literally, well, from my family's perspective, um, I think we would have probably been better off just staying in Dayton and staying working at right field. Uh, it was a good job, you know, and there was plenty of opportunities there and so forth. Um, but you know, there was this this drawing card of better jobs and more responsibility and bigger paychecks and whatever uh, that GE offered, <laughs> and it was just hard to turn down. And plus, I didn't have to move very far. You know, it was in fact right. I didn't think I was going to have to move at all. Uh, I in fact, when I first took the job with GE, it was down in Evendale, Cincinnati, northern Cincinnati, and. Um, it was about less than 50 miles away from where I lived. And um, so, you know, it was like an hour's drive. I just figured, hey, that's not too bad. <laughs> I could put up with that. Sure. And I did it for about six months and decided I can't put up with that. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we moved to Cincinnati. Well, and that kind of started the whole idea of moving. You know, I, I, once we made that first move out of town, uh, you know, we... we pretty much said goodbye to a lot of the big relationships we had developed in, in Dayton. Uh, you know, we knew a lot of good people. Uh, we were very, very strongly supported in our faith uh, through, through the people there in, in Dayton. And, uh, you know, just good relationships kinds of, kind of builds a good foundation for a family. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, I just, at the time, I was naive enough, I guess, that I just didn't realize how important that was to our life. And uh, so, you know, in taking the job, I figured, again, didn't have to move at all. But turned out I, I did because it was just not tolerable to have to drive two hours every day to work and back. Right. And uh, up and down that highway. 
about how old were you around that time? Well, let's see. That was 1969 when I moved from uh, from uh, Wright Patterson to GE. So that would have made me 32 years old. Okay. About 32, yeah. And so, you know, it was a pretty early time in my life still and young and full of vigor. And <laughs> yeah, I think that's a time where uh, you can uh, perhaps discount the value in your mind or not recognize the value of, uh, you know, community and, and putting yeah. down roots. Oh, amen to that, Tom. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's something I'm not sure you can ever pass on to someone else either. You know, the, the, right. the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from that um uh, having good firm roots in a community, you know, with people, you know, not, not just in a community that's based on things and places and whatever, but on the people that live there and that are close to you and love you and, and care for you and so forth. Uh, those are really important. And, uh, and I, you know, we kind of, uh, we kind of surrendered a lot of that in moving even to Cincinnati, which wasn't very far away. But, you know, 50 miles is 50 miles. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's far enough, right? <laughs> far it, enough. Almost, it almost doesn't matter if it's 50 or 500 miles, you know, if it's far that, enough to disconnect that's, you. That's true. And, and we became very quickly disconnected from the people that we knew and loved for years in Dayton. And, uh, you know, I mean, we'd see them occasionally, but not very often. Uh, and it only took two years of living down there before the company... You know, God, I think I told you about this already. <laughs> After less than two years of working at GE, um, they were, they were, I was working in a department that was supported by two government agencies. One was NASA up here in Cleveland, um, and then the other was the Atomic Energy Commission. Okay. And we were just doing a lot of research and development work for those two uh, government agencies. And... Um, in the late 60s and on into the very early part of the 70s, you know, the money was still flowing pretty good and space work and so forth. <laughs> as, uh, as I mentioned to you, I think, last time, uh, the, the money chute just kind of opened up in the government all through yeah. the 60s. <laughs> I mean, money was easy to be had. Yeah, yeah, So absolutely. it was spent. You know, we, did, we thought, hey, it's there. Let's spend it. <laughs> Have fun doing it. And, and we did, you know. But then uh, things started tightening up toward the end of that, that particular decade, uh, 69, 70, 71. The money, uh, money trees started uh, withering. And, uh, and so both, both of those uh, government uh, agencies started cutting back. And they, one of them cut back very severely, like the Atomic Energy Commission initially, uh, they were the ones that canceled all of our contracts. And we had, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars, worth the contracts with them. Hmm. And they just shut them down. Um, they said, no, you know, we're going to quit all of our test work and all of our research work at your facility. So uh, give us a, we had to give them a quote on what it was going to cost to clean up after them, you know, because oh, we were handling a lot of radioactive materials and stuff like that. You couldn't just shut it down and walk away from it. <laughs> you, had, you had to clean everything up. And so, and that was one of my assignments with the company, with GE, was to, I was the termination uh, program manager. <laughs> I, I had to figure out what it was going to cost the Atomic Energy Commission to shut us down. 
<laughs> right. And it wasn't cheap. I mean, we, we were talking like a half million bucks or something. It's like planning your clean. own, planning your own very expensive funeral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it gave me something to do for a few months, and uh, but nonetheless, uh, like I say, after that, it was roughly two years after I had started there, uh, which was which would have been late 1970, is when we got the word from uh, Atomic Energy Commission, and then followed almost immediately by word from NASA up in Cleveland, you know, that they were cutting back on most all of their contracts. And so the company, General Electric, they had to just shrink everything in a big hurry. You know, they said we had a 400-man department, and they were going to suddenly cut it down to, initially, just cut it right in half. <laughs> and then... Over about a six to eight month period, they were going to cut out most of the rest of it. <laughs> so, you know, it was a question of uh, first in, first out. And I was I was one of the guys that was, uh, you know, or uh, maybe last in, first out, pardon me. <laughs> so I, I was hired only two years before. So I was one of the favored few that were going to be let go. Um, and... Uh, and so that's, you know, I had to start looking around for a job real quick. Well, this, this happened at a very bad time in my life, uh, late 1970. Um, uh, your grandmother, my, my wife, was uh, very pregnant with Paula. <laughs> uh -huh. And she gave birth on December 10th, 1970, <laughs> two weeks after I got my, my notice, of, of my one-month notice to, <laughs> to terminate <Oof>. me. <laughs> That's rough. That was rough. <laughs> so that was here. I was with six kids and wife, and lots of responsibilities. And now all of a sudden, no job. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's that was kind of one of the first indicators of, you know, not being a part of a community, so to speak, that that you could reach out to for support and help during a, a trial period like that. And uh, I mean, we managed to get through it and all that, but it was a very dark time in our life. And, uh, and I, I was still naive to, to recognize that, you know, it was the thing I was leaving was all these relationships, you know, that we had formed in Dayton and tried to maintain a little bit of while we were still in Cincinnati. And we were forming new relationships down there, too. We got to know a few people in those first two years. But... Uh, but we didn't get to plant any real deep roots or anything, you know. So we were just kind of out on the end of the limb, and we just got cut off. So, you know, I had to go find a new job. And, uh, and so I started shopping around. Now, GE was very good in that respect. Uh, they gave me a lot of support from the office to, uh, to find a new job. You know, they, in fact, they told me immediately, they said, well... These next 30 days, you need to spend looking for another job. Forget about coming into work here. <laughs> huh. you might, you know, or if you come into work, just use our secretarial staff and whatever to help you find a job. Uh, wow. So they, they were very good about that. And uh, Yeah, I don't know so if you get that very much these days. No, you don't. But uh, no, they were very generous in that. And plus, at that time, GE had lots of uh, different locations around the country that had job opportunities for engineers. So, uh, so I got a list of all of them and I started looking at them and seeing which ones I might be interested in. And there were about three locations that sounded eh, somewhat promising. There was one location up in Erie, Pennsylvania. That was the closest. <laughs> that was their locomotive division. 
um, they needed some engineers. And then over in uh, Schenectady, New York, was the uh, the place I ended up uh, uh, got you know I transferred to, and that was uh, uh, a, a department in the company that handled all the Navy nuclear business. And then the third place was down in um, um, North Carolina. Uh, I forget the name of the town now, but it was their gas turbine engine division, and. Uh, so I, I could have gone to work there. They had jobs available. So I went around and I interviewed. I, I drove up from, from uh, Cincinnati to Erie and then on up to Schenectady. I stopped in Erie and interviewed there. And then I drove on to Schenectady and interviewed there. And, um, and you know, the jobs, they, they both offered me jobs. And I thought, well, hey, the one that was in Schenectady sounded pretty good. And it was a field position. I think I mentioned this already. Uh, with uh, Curtis Wright up in uh, Woodridge, uh, New Jersey. That's that's where I ended up going. It was a resident office, resident manufacturing office, and uh, so I I uh, that's where I transferred to. <laughs> well, that was a whole new world for me moving to New Jersey, and you know, obviously the cost of living there was a lot different from oh what yeah it was in Cincinnati. <laughs> In fact, the thing that grabbed me right away was the housing costs. <laughs> yeah, I bet. My, yeah, at, at that time, my I, I forget, that was what, 19, early 1971. Uh, my, the really, the brand new home that I had just bought in Cincinnati, which was valued at about $33,000. It was a very nice, a five bedroom, uh, two story, all you know, brick home and had uh, two and a half baths and so forth. Very nice home and a nice subdivision. Um, and it was worth all of 33,000 bucks, which in those days, that was a pretty nice house. <laughs> and, um, went to New Jersey and started shopping around for properties. And the, there wasn't anything in the neighborhood of what we had been living in, in Cincinnati that we could touch for less than about $65,000. <laughs> and, you know, Again, that doesn't sound like much in, in today's terms, you know, I mean, 65 grand for a house is nothing. But back then, it was a lot of money. I mean, and in fact, it was more than double what I was going to be able to sell my old place for. So, and that was the best I could do. So I looked around, looked around, I finally found a, a, a new home that was being built that was small, but yet, you know, it was four bedrooms, two baths, two and a half baths and all that. But uh, it was built on a small lot. And, um, it was in a little wayward town called Fairfield, New Jersey. Uh, it wasn't too far from where I worked, about 25 minute drive. And so I, we ended up buying a house there. I think it cost us $45,000. <laughs> and to me, I mean, I, I nearly gagged on having to pay that much. <laughs> I mean, that was like a, that was like a 50% uh, increase over my, uh, the value of my current home. Yeah, and definitely some sticker shock, I'm sure. Oh, it was, it was. Uh, so at any rate, we, we did make the move and uh, got settled in there and spent spent two years working as a resident uh, engineer, manufacturing engineer at the Curtis Wright plant there uh, for GE. Uh, and that, that, that was all building uh, nuclear power systems for the Navy, for aircraft carriers and submarines. And it was really, interesting work. I mean, I loved working with uh, machine shops and welding shops and all that kind of stuff, you know, hands-on stuff. Now, I didn't do any of the welding or machining, but 
but I was walking around the shops every day. That was my job, was to oversee the manufacturing stuff. And uh, so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and then after a couple of years, the, the Navy's uh, approach to having resident office people was you shouldn't be there more than a couple of years because you get too familiar with the company you're working with. And, you know, instead of working for your own company, you become more in favor of the company that you, where you're stationed. And that was yeah. the Navy, Navy's view of things. So they discouraged resident people from staying at any one location more than two years. And uh, so after two years, uh, I was encouraged <laughs> to transfer again, which I did, transferred to the home office up in Schenectady, um, working in the engineering offices. But that was mostly sitting behind a desk, you know, and approving plans and reviewing drawings and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was okay, but, you know, there was no... Uh, manufacturing going on there and there was no uh, experimentation stuff going no laboratory work so you know I, I was kind of out of my out of my element uh, working just behind a desk uh, but it was okay I, I think I spent about a year and a half there and along came another opportunity for another field job working out in either Barberton, Ohio at Burke, Babcock and Wilcox or I could have gone to Alice Chalmers over in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, those were my two choices. And, um, and they were promoting me. They were giving me a job of ma manager of the uh, manufacturing office at either of those uh, suppliers. So I, I looked with joy at the, the possibility of moving again. And I'll tell you, you know, two or three moves with the company, and they were very generous about their uh, financial allowances for moving their people, uh, it, it got to be kind of fun. I mean, I, I, you know, I was enjoying it. I wasn't too sure about the effects on my family. Uh, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't like having the rip up. You know, the kids were going to school and they had to, you know, give up all their neighborhood friends and all their school friends and, and make some new friends at a different school. Uh, but I thought, hey, they're young and, you know, they can, they're flexible. They can... They can put up with that. And that was true. You know, they really did it. They were able to make friends real quickly and easily, uh, both in uh, New Jersey and up, upstate New York. Uh, and even when we moved back out here into Ohio, uh, you know, they made friends quickly. And that was not the problem. The problem was that we had no community under us, not, nothing that we had sunk our roots into that we could count on when things got kind of got going tough. And, and they did. Within two years after we moved here to Ohio, um, now this is kind of getting off of my career path a little bit, but, but it has a lot to do with it. Um, that's when the, our, our family uh, problems began. You know, my wife and I had some difficulties with each other, I guess. I never, I never noticed it, <laughs> but she did. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have anybody to turn to. You know, we we were kind of a, a life within, our, within ourselves. That's all we had to depend on was uh, the two of us. Yeah. And uh, little by little, uh, uh, things didn't work well, and, and uh, she ended up deciding that there was a, a better life for her somewhere else. And, and so she left. You know, she just left the family. And, uh, and there we were, you know, I had six kids to raise. <laughs> Yeah. And now suddenly a single parent and uh, life really did change then. 
even though I was, you know, I was still firmly employed with General Electric and had a good job and all that, uh, the job didn't make much difference in those days. You know, I just, I, it was my family that was disintegrating before my very eyes. So um, that's when, you know, when I look back on things, I realized the mistakes that I made, um, mostly because of naivety. You know, I mean, I just, I didn't realize how much impact it was going to have on us to move around as we did. Um, I was taking advantage of what I thought was better job opportunities and, and higher pay and all that, things that I thought would serve my family. But those weren't the important things to serve my family. <laughs> right, well, that's almost, out. yeah, and that's sort of the shame of it, right, is you thought you were, uh, you know, you thought you were doing the right thing for your family. Yep. You know. I mean, it, you know, I guess maybe not a shame since that meant you were well-intentioned. You weren't doing it just for personal gain. But, oh, right. No, you know. no, it was not a personal gain. No, I, I mean, I, when I look back on it, like I say, uh, the, the regret I have is giving in to the thought that, that the moving and moving up a corporate ladder was the right thing to do for my family. And I realized that, no, there's a balance there somewhere. You've got to stop and realize what effect that's going to actually have on your family before you make the moves. Right. Um, it's not that it's wrong to, you know, take a career improvement. Um, certainly not if it's, if it, you know, I can help the family in a lot of ways, financially and whatever. But you do have to look seriously at your surroundings, at your, what you've grown up in and what your family has grown used to. And the you know, big if, picture. Yeah. If, if you start ripping that apart, um, for the sake of what you think are future payoffs, <laughs> uh, you know, you could be mistaken. And that's, when I look back on my life, I see, yeah, I was mistaken. Uh, you know, probably would have been better off just staying with uh, my career at, at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I could have probably worked there all the rest of my life and retired from there, you know. Uh, now, you know, I wouldn't have had maybe quite the opportunities for adventure and, you know, moving around and uh, getting to see a lot of the country and meeting a lot of, a lot of people in different uh, companies and whatever. And those are all nice things, <laughs> but they're not the important thing in your life. You know, your family is much more important. And, and here I thought I was doing good things for them, and it turned out they weren't so good. So, you know, I learned a lot yeah. along the way, and that's, I think that's what they call wisdom. Sure. <laughs> you know, you you gain knowledge and understanding first of something, but wisdom comes at a hard price. You know, it, it comes from actually experiencing what your knowledge and understanding has given you. And, uh, and uh, you know, our life isn't about just get, making more money and getting better jobs and moving around and having fun. I mean, our life has much more to do with what we have to give to others and primarily to your family, if that's, you know, if you have a family, that's, yeah. that's what your uh, obligations are. And that's where you, you will ultimately be most satisfied. Um, so at any rate, I, in fact, I was, <laughs> as a little diversion, uh, this morning I was teach, teaching high school PSR to a couple of young men. Uh, and I was using this DVD series from, from uh, Bishop Barron. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but... Um, He's a well-known uh, preacher, if you will, Catholic uh, bishop. He, boy, he was a priest when he made these DVDs, but, but he's now a bishop and a, a really wise man. 
and, and very good, very talented at being able to proclaim the faith, the truth of our faith, and so forth. And one of the things he was talking about today was he was, he was presenting conversion stories from the, the, old, the Old and New Testament. And he started with the one with uh, the, the blind beggar, Bartimaeus was his name. And, uh, and the whole story had to do with not just physical blindness on Bartimaeus's part, because Jesus was passing by, and Bartimaeus, you know, I, I don't know if you know about that story, but yeah. uh, Jesus was passing by, and Bartimaeus heard of him coming by, and he, you know, he reached, he, he called out, and he said, hey, uh, Jesus, help me, and, uh, the, and the people around him wanted to shut him up, <laughs> but he just kept crying out and whatever, and finally Jesus paid attention to him and says, you know, come on, come on over here to me, and, and he got up threw off his robe, which turns out was a, a symbol of him essentially throwing off his old life that, that he had lived, uh, caught up in his own ego, so to speak. In other words, the, the things that, that meant the most to him were his, his problems of blindness and not being able to do certain things and whatever. And that, had, that was all personal stuff. What he failed to see, though, was a bigger picture that Jesus had to give him not only through the physical uh, vision, but through the spiritual vision of seeing that his life was not meant simply for himself to live. It was meant for him to give away. And, uh, and in fact, you know, that was one of the, the bottom line messages that Bishop Barron had was that, you know, if you want to have joy in your life, true joy, the way you get that is by giving your life away. And there's just no other way to do that, you know, and, and it's very simple in a way and yet very difficult to do. And, you know, he, yeah, the, the, isn't there a passage that says, you know, he who seeks to save his life will lose it and he <laughs> who loses life will save it. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And, you know, and, and Jesus himself was the, was the prime example of giving away his life. I mean, he finally, after three years of preaching the gospel, the good news, you know, he ended up giving his life to save all the rest of us. Right, in a more and, literal sense. In a more literal sense. And so, in a way, that's, that's exactly the message that, uh, that Bartimaeus was being given. You know, that it, it wasn't just simple physical blindness. It was a spiritual blindness that was the biggest problem in his life. And what he needed to do was retune how he saw things. He needed to see things as they really are. And as Bishop Barron points out, the way they really are is that all things and all people are connected together in some way through God. And that's the way he wants us to see things. But, you know, most of us don't really see things that way. We, we see them in our own human eyes and we have our own ways of, of putting emphasis on certain things and whatever. So at any rate, I, I just, I got a, a lot out of that particular <laughs> session this morning. And it, and it meant to me, you know, a lot of things that, uh, that I was blind to back in those days when I was 32 years old and, and looking for career improvements and all that. Uh, you know, I thought I knew the way to do that. Uh, but I, ha I didn't stop to, to see if there was some other way that I could achieve what was meant for my life. And, you know, I could have gotten that perhaps by going to a, a trusted uh, confessor or, you know, a trusted uh, counselor of some kind and talking it over with him and saying, you know, here's, here's what I'm being presented with. You know, I can take this opportunity to move and 
move my family and we've got better chance for uh, you know more uh, more paychecks and so forth uh, and more opportunities in the future uh, and then what we have to give up though here on the other hand is all of our relationships that we've spent 10 or 12 years trying to develop <laughs> what do you think about that right <laughs> I, I suspect that, you know, any good counselor would have said, well, you probably want to think at least two or three times about making that move because what you're about to give up is a lot more important than what you're telling me you're going to gain, you know. And, and I'm thinking, now I'm thinking, yeah, that would have been, that's the advice I would have given any young man that came to me. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, those are the things you learn with time over years and, uh, that's what I call wisdom nowadays. It's, it's things that you you actually learn in your heart uh, that didn't mean a lot to you maybe 30 years ago or 40 or 50 years ago. You know, they were important, but not so important that they uh, they moved your decisions around one way or the other. And uh, so I learned a lot from from my own experience in life that uh, it's really important when you're you know raising a family. That you, not so much that you're totally centered on your family, but that you take them into account in all that you do, uh, including career moves. You know, I mean, if it means ripping up your family and moving out to the West Coast or something, well, maybe it's a good thing to do, but maybe it's not. You know, and and you got to think about what am I giving up in order to gain this? You know. Um, there's, did, there's you, some other. did you, uh, you know, sort of consult with your family about those decisions? Or do you feel like looking back, you sort of made them <laughs> on your own? I feel like I made it on my own. I mean, I, I know I talk with my wife about it, <laughs> you know, with your grandma. But, uh, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't just do it without her yeah, right. giving her blessings, so to speak. But, I, you know, I think the way in which I put it was such that I was I was trying to sway her, you know. I mean, that, sure. telling her all the good things that could come of this, and uh, you know, career opportunities and and more pay and and the excitement even of moving around, you know, and moving up the corporate ladder. It seemed to me like back in those days that was kind of a thing to do, you know. It was sort of like a, a rite of passage, sort sort of like not the same as, but sort of like um, when I was a youngster around 15, 16 years old. Uh, a rite of passage in those days was to, for a young man to begin smoking cigarettes. Right. You no, know, I don't even know why when I look back on it, but it was a rite of passage. I mean, it was something that people just did because everybody did it. <laughs> and you, you weren't considered to be a man unless you knew how to smoke a cigarette. You know, and you know, I look back on that now and I just have to chuckle. I think, Lord, were we sold a bill of goods? <laughs> you yeah. know, but... But that's the way it happens when people grow up. It's like nowadays, people are sold all kinds of bills of goods because of the Internet, because of all the screens that they have in front of them, you know, the uh, digital screens uh, and, and all of the communications media they have, you know, the Snapchats and the, and the Facebooks and the, all the other stuff that catches their attention and holds it to the extent that they start believing everything that they read or see. Uh, maybe not everything, but most of it, <laughs> you know, and and that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, when you start believing in artificial intelligence, so to speak, <laughs> you, you better start standing back and seeing what you really stand for in life 
And well, the- and I think that a lot of the sort of messaging that young people consume in media, they're not even necessarily explicitly, you know, a, a lot of what they're coming to believe is sort of implicit. It, they don't even realize that they're starting to believe it. I think that oh, it absolutely. Off, it's often the subtext of the advertising and the media that um, it just starts to become part of your milieu. And and that can, I think, make it yep. harder to notice. Oh, absolutely, Tom. You got that right on the, right on the button. Yeah, it's that subtle um, influence that, that things have on us that we don't really realize sometimes until too late, you know. Um, but, but some people who, you know, if you start listening to other people who've had the experience of being subdued, if you will, by some of these influences and realize, yeah, maybe that wasn't such a good idea for them to listen to what, what they were hearing. And right. Especially to start behaving like they were being taught to behave. Um, and that's what, what tends to happen. I mean, you know, it's not intentional even. Like you say, I, you know, there's very little going on out there in those communications media that, that is intentionally trying to teach you something. There are a few places some people are. Sure. <laughs> like, I, I believe there are some people in this, this cancel culture movement, if you will. It's kind of a nondescript movement. But it's happening. I mean, I see it happening, and I know it's it's going to have a de- very detrimental effect on our younger generation. If we start uh, questioning everything that happened in our history in this country, for example, and uh, the people who built this country, uh, just because they were sinners like me, you know, <laughs> because they had faults that you can now find and point to and say, well, we, you know, the, the monuments that we built to these people don't make any sense yeah. because they were they were wrong in certain areas of their life. Right. If, if that's the case, you can't have a statue for anybody, or a, you know. That's correct. Not only a statue, but I mean a, a belief that they something they built. Now I, I think of guys like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, people who actually had a lot to do with the uh, building of our country. You know, they had a lot of good, wise input on how a free people needs to govern itself. And yet, yeah, they had faults. <laughs> you know, they had slaves and whatever. I mean, <laughs> a lot of bad things they did. But they had some fundamental ideas that were very good, and we need to not ever forget those. And yet, that's what's happening. The history books are being rewritten for youngsters going through uh, high school and whatever, and they're eliminating these people as part of the development of our nation. And that's a big mistake. Our, our kids need to know about the people who built this country and what the good things were that they brought to us. The whole idea of freedom. I mean, that, that's starting to be lost. What freedom even means, you know? Um, so at any rate, I, <laughs> I didn't mean to get off on that tangent. No, no, that's pr- that's, that's <laughs> but, I, but I think there's some, you know, really important ideas that need to be passed along to younger generations, to our kids and our grandkids and whatever. And I think they're going to lose out if people keep uh, pecking away at, at uh, these nitpicking things. You know, that's what I call them. I mean, so what if a guy had slaves? Yeah, that was wrong. And <laughs> we can recognize that that was wrong. But, you know, let's, let's move ahead. Yeah, let's you don't want to the- throw out the baby with the bathwater. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I think, I think it might've been Jonah Goldberg that was 
I heard talking about that subject and, and how through history, as we've made progress on things like uh, women's suffrage and, and black suffrage, the, the way that those yeah. people made their appeal uh, to be included in, in society and in political process was by pointing to American ideals, right? It, exactly. When, when we founded the country, we, it was founded on a set of ideals that even then our country was not necessarily living up to, but it's, it's by, it, as America makes progress, it is making progress towards a more idealized form based on that original ideal. It's not that it's changing to something that it wasn't before. It's becoming itself, so to speak. You're, I think you're, you're moving closer to that ideal rather than some other ideal that, you yeah. know, that it wasn't yeah. founded on. And I think that's important yeah. to yeah. keep in mind. Yep, sure is. Sure is. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're kind of losing a, a general sense of that perspective of looking at, um, at historical figures and, and what influence they had on our lives and why it's so important to, to keep them alive in our history, you know, I mean, <laughs> and the ideas that they brought to us. Now, not the bad stuff. I mean, we need to know that, yeah, they did some bad, bad things, as all of us do, you know, but then you got to look at, yeah, but what our country was founded on the idea of a free people. It's the only nation in the whole world that has ever been founded on such an ideal. No, no other country was ever founded on that ideal of a free people, you know, with a free government, with a constitution that directs its actions, if you will, that defines its perimeter, its, uh, its uh, boundaries, uh, the its limits boundaries, I guess you might say. Yeah, it's limit, limits and so forth. And, and even, you know, you look at the way our government was founded, the three different uh, branches of the government, how they were built with checks and balances and all that. I mean, all that stuff is really important because that's what a free people needs to, to actually flourish. And yet we're throwing all that away because somebody thinks that they have a better idea, that, you know, that somehow uh, it's okay for presidents to write executive orders and those take the place of the laws. Well, that was never intended. Yeah, I think I think one thing that the founders maybe uh, may have gotten a little bit wrong or, or didn't have foresight of was I think that they imagined that Congress would be a more jealous guardian of its power. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that they wouldn't, you know, I think the power of political parties, you know, caused so much gridlock that Congress was just eager to delegate so much power to the executive and the judiciary because that's easier than legislating, you know. Oh yeah. I don't know oh, if yeah. they. I don't know if they anticipated that Congress would abdicate its duty so uh, profoundly. <laughs> but right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. In fact, our you know our whole government system and our whole Constitution and our whole Declaration of Independence was dependent on a, a set of moral values that were based on a belief in a Creator. You know, and that's stated right in our, our Declaration of Independence and in our Constitution, you know, the preamble of the Constitution. We, you know, we all, we founded this country or somebody founded this country for us on the basis of our, our uh, acknowledged belief that someone created us. We didn't create ourselves. We, you know, we, we don't have total control over everything we do and we have to acknowledge what, what God, our creator, has in mind for us because he has our, our best interest in mind. And we don't always know that. 
So we have to we have to go back to him, and that's that that's kind of stated right in our Constitution. All of the all of the the, the uh, first ten amendments and so forth, the Bill of Rights. You know, they're all dependent on are agreeing that, yeah, there's some higher power here that we all agree takes precedent over right. our Congress, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, But nowadays, you know, everybody thinks, well, no, hey, we're, we're self-reliant people. You know, we know it all. We can, we can do whatever we need to do on our own. We don't need any outside power. Well, that's where we're going wrong. <laughs> we do need something outside ourselves. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with what I was talking about before with my career. <laughs> well, that's all right. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the tangent. <laughs> well, good, good. But uh, so at any rate, yeah. The, well, just kind of get back to trying to reach a little wrap up for today's session. Um, the, the rest of my uh, my employment with General Electric. Let's see. Um, I think I left off where I I had made a move to uh, to New Jersey as a part of a resident office job there. Uh, getting involved in the Navy nuclear program. Uh, and, and that was really, I, I just loved it. I mean, I'll tell you what, I don't want to get into a lot of technical details of what we did, but just developing all this high powered stuff yeah. for Navy ships was, was really uh, exciting. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you, when you have to power a 95,000 ton aircraft carrier through the water at 50 miles an hour, I mean, it takes huge amounts of power and all, and all the electrical power on board that ship to support a crew of 5,000 men. I mean, it requires huge amounts of electrical power. And so, and you get that best by a, a nuclear reactor. And in fact, they use two nuclear reactors on board these aircraft carriers, the one in the front and one in the back, so to speak. Uh, they have a, a forward uh, nuclear compartment and a and aft nuclear compartment. They keep them separated for uh, obvious reasons, you know, in case one of them gets disabled by some bomb or rocket or torpedo or whatever it is, the ship can still operate. But um, nonetheless, I mean, it requires a huge amount of power. It requires, you know, some new technology with respect to materials and, and how you handle, uh, ha how you handle this uh, radioactive environment and so forth. And uh, so, it, you know, it just, to me, it got to be really interesting, uh, the way in which you have to build all this equipment to make sure that it, it works under all kinds of ridiculous conditions, like, you know, sudden explosions and so forth. <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, so we, that was my job there, was overseeing the manufacture of all these boilers and pressurizers and pumps and whatever uh, that the, uh, these contractors were building for us. Uh, GE was a prime contractor in that business, by the way, and uh, as such, the Navy wouldn't allow us to bid on our own equipment. We were, we were a prime contractor, so we had to help design and, and oversee the construction of all these nuclear reactors and pressurizers and boilers and whatever. And we had the physical capability to build that stuff within GE, but the Navy wouldn't let us bid on it. <laughs> They thought that we had an unfair advantage <laughs> by being a prime contractor. So we had to find other contractors in the heavy equipment business. And there were, you know, four or five of them. Uh, and we had to kind of divide up the work a little bit because it was, you know, just a limited amount. 
So there was Babcock and Wilcox, and there was Curtis Wright and Alice Chalmers, Struthers Wells. Uh, there's probably one or two others that I've forgotten. But uh, they all built all this big, heavy equipment. And uh, yeah, building it, though, was a lot of fun. I mean, I just really enjoyed it. Because, <laughs> you know, my job was to make sure it was being built right in accordance with our specifications and make sure we got our fair share of, uh, of that company's resources in, in building it and so forth. Uh, make sure make sure they met our schedules of delivery and all that. So it was a pretty challenging job. But uh, so anyway, I spent a couple of years there at uh, Curtis Wright, and then, like I say, uh, because the Navy wanted to limit uh, people who were in resident offices to a couple of years or so, um, I was invited to uh, transfer up to the home office in Schenectady, which I did for about a year and a half or so. Uh, and then I was offered another job in the field, and I was given the choice of either uh, Alice Chalmers in Pennsylvania or B&W here in Ohio. And, uh, and I just chose B&W. I just figured, well, it's closer to home. The home was still, you know, southwest uh, Ohio. <laughs> I was getting closer anyway. <laughs> but uh, now I'm, I'm in northeast Ohio. It's only a few hundred miles away. So... <laughs> Anyway, I thought it was closer to home, what I called home, you know, that's where I grew up and all. But uh, anyway, so I came here to B&W, and, and that's where I stayed, you know, that's when, that was the period of time when my family kind of fell apart, and uh, over, it, it didn't take me too long to realize that uh, more moving around wasn't going to do my family good. <laughs> so I made up my mind, I wasn't interested in further advancements within the company you know I, I just figured hey I'm going to stay here as long as they would have me and uh, and that lasted for 20 years <laughs> 20, about 20 years okay. I spent at B&W uh, almost that much yeah I, mean, I think I, I uh, checked in down there in 1974 and um, and then I finally retired from GE in 1994 December of 94 <laughs> So uh, when they offered me an early retirement, <laughs> that was one of the other things that happened then. You know, as time went by, uh, <clears throat> my home office kept putting pressure on me to, uh, you know, to move somewhere else in the company. And they had other jobs they were willing to offer me, you know, that were improvements and step up pay wise and all that. But, you know, I just decided, no, my family had already undergone uh, a huge uh, split, and uh, I wasn't going to have that happen anymore. So uh, I, I decided, no, this is where I'm going to stay, and uh, and I did until the point in time came when the company said, well, now your alternative is <laughs> to either take a a layoff notice, <laughs> or you know you can you can move somewhere else in the company. And I said, well, hey, I'll I'll take the layoff, and well, then right along with that came this golden opportunity once in a lifetime where GE as a company opened up uh, just a small window for about a year. They were offering early retirement to anybody who had 25 years service. And that's when I had, at the end of 94, I had 25 years service. <laughs> so I took the opportunity to retire. And uh, Sure. Were, were you still doing defense-oriented stuff at B&W? The, the which? I'm sorry. At, like defense stuff for the military oh oh yeah it was still oh yeah it was still navy nuclear work oh yeah absolutely so was that your was that your sort of favorite uh place to work throughout your career uh you know 
I, I don't know because I would have said yes uh, when I was getting out of there because it was a, a, a fun place to work. I mean, I really enjoyed working and building that stuff. But, um, you know, when I, when I quit there, actually when I retired from there, <laughs> and uh, I took a year off and, and donated my time to uh, the Bread of Life community that, that was kind of getting going at that time. Your, your mom and dad were part of that too. Yeah. Um, at any rate, so I, I donated a year of my service there. And then I was offered a job with the county, county engineer's office, by a friend of mine, Bill Nujabauer. He happened to work there. Yeah, yeah. And so he offered me a, a part-time job. And I thought, well, that's, you know, that sounds good to me. I mean, I'd enjoy going back to work part-time. So then I started working part-time for the county engineer. And I did that for about four and a half years or so, and then transferred to uh, the county environmental services. And I have to say, those became kind of my favorite places, probably because they're the most recent jobs in my memory. <laughs> you know, I, sure. I think that has a lot to do with it. But, but they, you know, they were a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoyed the people I worked with, and I, I enjoyed the work itself. I mean, I, you know, when you tell people, well, what was your work involving? Well, it, it involved digging trenches, laying pipe. Uh, building pump stations and tearing down uh, treatment plants. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I, I mean, it was like a whole new world for me, Tom. You know, I, I had never worked in that kind of a field before. You know, in the sewer business. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a new challenge, right? Yeah. It's something to apply your prior skill sets e to and to learn. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I learned about how to build pumps and all that stuff and heat transfer equipment years ago, but it was all different kinds of stuff. You know, I was back years before it was high speed pumps working in, in unfriendly environments in space and that kind of stuff. And, um, and then on board, uh, you know, ships, Navy ships and all that totally different environment. Now all of a sudden it's all land-based stuff. The rules are all different. But, you know, the, now we're going through people's backyards, you know, we're, we're working in their neighborhoods right? <laughs> and we're digging big holes around where they live. <laughs> so it gave you a whole new set of challenges. I mean, I, there were many, many times I had to spend when we were going to lay pipeline, for example, for a new pressure, uh, a uh, force main, we had maybe have to lay about five or six thousand feet of force main. We went through a lot of people's yards. Well, in order to do that, you have to get right away uh, for, for doing that from the people. You know, you can't just go into their front yard and start digging a hole. <laughs> so you have to negotiate for, uh, for an easement. You've probably heard of things like easements. Your, your folks have yeah. a big easement in their side yard for that big power line that runs down through there. You know, they, they're not allowed to build yeah, anything yeah. under that. Or maybe you're not. Right. Maybe you're not aware of that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah I'm. Uh, I'm familiar. Yeah. At any rate, but that's a uh, that's an easement that was granted to the company that owns those power lines. Well, that's what we had to do as sewer people. We had to go negotiate easements with neighbors for us to be able to lay a new pipeline or something through their backyard or front yard or whatever it might be, something close to their property, um, and we had to pay them for that. I mean. <laughs> You can't just say, hey, right. would you uh, mind donating this land and allow us to, anytime there's a problem, we, <laughs> we're allowed to come in in your front yard and dig big holes in it and repair the pipeline or whatever. No, you got to pay them. You have, you know, and they have to pay them something that's reasonable. 
So <laughs> that was that was also part of my job, was going around to various neighbors, <laughs> saying, hey, we got this pipeline that's going to come through your backyard, and here's about where it's going to be, and you know, we got to go so deep, and you know, we need so many, maybe 15, 20 feet of width all the way through your backyard in order to allow for the equipment to get in there and so forth, and to dig this big trench. And, um, so, you know, we have to talk them into the benefits of what we were about to do <laughs> to allow us to dig these big holes in their yards. <laughs> and I found that to be, you know, a very pleasant challenge. You know, you get to meet people and you find out they're, you know, some of them are very resistant <laughs> to letting you do anything like that. Uh, and they wouldn't sign on the dotted line. So you'd end up having to reroute the pipeline or something, you know, around their property. And we had to do that a few times. Because you can't, I mean, there is such a thing as eminent domain, they call it, in government terms, <laughs> where if somebody, you know, digs in their heels and doesn't want to sell you their property or, or give you an easement through it, uh, you, can, you can impose this eminent domain. You know, it's better, it has to do with a community, the, the, the good, good for the community, if you will, overrides your own personal needs or privacy or whatever. And... Uh, and there is there are laws about that, but we hated to impose those things on people. <laughs> it doesn't make for very good neighbors. <laughs> they get kind of upset when you impose that eminent domain clause. But uh, did did you find it rewarding that you were doing work in your own community and sort of serving the area where you lived? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I think that's well. Now, of course, it, we were working through all of Summit County, so it wasn't exactly sure. my immediate neighborhood. But, you know, right. the, the county is my neighbor, and, and that was part of it, you know, just knowing that, gee, you know, in some way I'm helping to improve things um, because sewage, <laughs> there was one thing in the sewage business you found out right away was sewage was something nobody wanted to hear about, and they never wanted to see it. <laughs> you know, right. if, if you did your job right, they would never know what happened when they flushed their toilet. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and that's the way you wanted it to, to keep it. You don't want that stuff to be backing up onto their property or up into their basement or anything else. So you, you had to design everything so that it worked right. And uh, so that you could get to it to maintain it if you needed to and so forth. And you had to work with them, you know, to let them know what the, some of the, the difficulties were and so forth. And, uh, and I remember there were communities around here up in Monroe Falls. We had to go into a neighborhood that... Uh, because of time, over time, uh, stormwater began to overtake some of the uh, the uh, sanitary sewers. You know, stormwater was flowing down into the, san it was leaking into the sanitary sewers and uh, over, you know, kind of uh, filling up the sanitary sewer system, so to speak, causing it to back up in certain areas. And there were, there were houses that were built uh, that probably should have been built that way, but they were. Uh, such that sometimes sewage would back up in people's basements. And it Ooh. wasn't their own sewage, it was, it was the whole neighborhoods. Oh, even worse. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I remember having to go talk with people about that. And, you know, we, we, we took a very sympathetic approach to that. Um, you know, simply say, as admitting that, well, you know, it's because of the sewer system, uh, the, the design of it, the overall design, but was had to do really with certain contractors not abiding in all of the, the rules of it over the years that caused this problem. 
So, you know, we'll, we're going to pay to have it fixed, but, you know, we need your permission to do certain things. And some of those uh, houses, I remember, we had to do what was called hanging their plumbing. In other words, the, the, all their plumbing in their house would normally would feed down underneath the house. That uh, would go out that elevation through a pipe out to, to the sewer system out in the street. Well, if, if the sewage was backing up into their basement, the only solution to that was to intercept all of the sewage coming out of their house at a higher elevation. And that's what we called hanging the plumbing. We would take the underground pipes, and we would hang them essentially on the, uh, the ceiling of the basement and run those out through the sidewall of their, of their basement wall out into their sewer system. So that was entering the sewer at a higher elevation so that any backup would not ever come back into their house. Because uh, water does seek its own level. I don't know if you know that fact. <laughs> That's one of the physical facts of life. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you get a pool of water and you get inlets going into it from various places, it's going to be level across all of those inlets. <laughs> There's just no way getting around it until, unless you intercept it somehow. And that's what we did. I remember having to pay big bucks to have new plumbing put in the houses. And uh, again, like I say, it was challenging and interesting, mostly because you, know, you had the feeling that you were helping somebody. Out of, a, out of a serious problem that they couldn't do anything about. You know, there was no way they could overcome the sewage backup. <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't just hand them a plunger and say, hey, just start plunging. Because <laughs> plungers just don't do it. <laughs> so, you, right. yeah, so we had to you know, restring their, uh, their sewage pipes and so forth. And uh, so I found that kind of challenging and fun and whatever. And there were a whole lot of what we call package treatment plants all around the county that were built, you know, a long, long time ago for one particular purpose. They were to, to serve a very small group of houses or something. And, but they were, and they had very small capacity. And of course the EPA didn't like what was called package treatment plants because the, the um, design criteria for those was different from the, from the really big treatment plants. So the EPA leaned on us heavily to close down those package plants and pipe all of that sewage into a main treatment plant somewhere. And that was also part of my job, <laughs> was to, I, I shut down and tore down three different uh, package treatment plants in my small career there. And, um, and we rerouted all that sewage by way of a, a small pump station over to some other place, you know. And, we had miles and miles and miles of sewer pipes running all around under the ground. And as long as they stayed under the ground, <laughs> and as long as the sewage stayed under the ground, nobody paid any attention. You know, but it's only when it starts coming up to the surface, that's when people get worried. Yeah, it's the kind of job where nobody <laughs> notices when you do your job right, but they sure notice when you do it wrong. Oh, amen to that. So, <laughs> yeah, and I had a lot of that. And yet it was kind of, it was fun. Um, maybe fun isn't the right word, but it was very enjoyable yeah. to, uh, to work with people through some of those trials. You know, I, I remember when we were part of, one of the jobs I had was to tear down the Monroe Falls Dam. It, it was actually part of an improve, improvement to the water quality of the Cuyahoga River such that we could dump more effluent from our sewage treatment plants into it without, you know, polluting it. Hmm. And, uh, 
that, I mean, it's a long story. I don't want to go into that now, but uh, so that one of my jobs was to tear down that that uh, that that uh, dam out there. Well, the problem, of course, was there were about a half a dozen homes along that river, along the riverbank, that used to. I mean, they had, a couple of them had boat docks out in their backyards. Oh, jeez! <laughs> because the river ha- at that point had become more like a lake. You know, there was this. That was about three three hundred fifty feet wide or four hundred feet wide, um, and it wasn't intended to be that way. When you know, the river was never that big. Right. But a hundred years ago, somebody built that dam and dammed it up, and now you got this big pool, what they call a dam pool, behind it. Right. It, it acts more like a lake than it does a river. It's not a free-flowing thing. And, but then people built homes along there, and, uh, and, they, and their property backed right up to the river. <laughs> and they, they liked it because even though the river is pretty polluted, they still enjoyed certain water sports. You know? Sure. <laughs> so one of my jobs was I had to go talk to each one of these residents along the river there and tell them what we were about to do. And that when we did it, the riverbank was suddenly going to shrink. Instead of being 350 feet across, it was going to end up being about 100 feet across. And the water level <laughs> was going to go down to the point where uh, when they walk out to the end of their boat dock, uh, it was going to be dry land. <laughs> <laughs> or actually not dry land, it was going to be mud. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was. We, we showed them pictures and everything, try to... Uh, convince them that this ultimately was a good thing to do for the community because it would uh, lower the pollution level in the in the river, uh, which is what you know that that's why we were taking the dam down. Right. Uh, but at any rate, it, it was it was very enjoyable trying to tell people that give them that message that this was really for long range for for their benefit, even though <laughs> short range uh, they were no longer going to be able to you know, dock their boat out at the end of their boat dock. <laughs> or if they did, it was going to be sitting in mud instead of water. <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, they were all worried about, well, what's going to happen with all that mud and muck and everything, you know? And we said, well, we, you know, we got a program to, uh, to go in there and plant all kinds of good vegetation. And, you know, we, we had to hire companies to, to really develop some really interesting ideas. <laughs> for the, uh, the vegetation that needed to grow along a riverbank. And uh, so, it, you know, it got to be a really interesting job, even though, you know, it was all behind the scenes stuff. Very few people knew about it, except for the, the five or six residents along the river there. They knew about it. And most of them were unhappy. But yeah, I <laughs> you know, bet. Part, part of my job was to help them be more happy about it. <laughs> so at any rate, that... I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. That's why I think, you know, when I think back to my GE days, yeah, that was a lot of, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of fun, a lot of challenges and whatever. But some of the more uh, personal challenges had to do with being in the county engineer's office, uh, doing floodwater control, uh, or not stormwater control, not floodwater. Um, and then also in the uh, county uh, environmental services where, you know, we took care of sewage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it tickles me just to think about that. You know, how do you get so much enjoyment out of sewage? <laughs> well, it ain't just the sewage. It's the, you know, all the means that you have to take to uh, convince people that what you're doing is really a good thing. And, 
uh, digging holes in their backyard or draining out a river behind their house is really a good thing in the long run. Uh, but, you know, all of that has, has to come with uh, a dose of, of humility and so forth. You know, you can't go into somebody's house and, and uh, just try to overpower them and say, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do this no matter what you say. Uh, but, which is what we really intended to do. <laughs> I mean, they, they, could, they could bellyache all they wanted, but we were going to go ahead and take that dam down. <laughs> and you know, they could write, write, write letters to their congressmen or whatever, but uh, we were going to do it nonetheless. Sure. So, at any rate, um, I think those, those days or those years, which were about, I think I worked a total of about 10 years for, this, for Summit County. Uh, in those two positions, uh, and they they were both challenging and enjoyable, partly because of the technical stuff that had to be done. You know, I mean, I, I really enjoyed learning how to build pump stations, and in fact, I even built a water tower out in Stowe. Someday you'll have to drive out there behind the post office along State Route 91. Uh, oh. There's a big water tower out there. That's I built that. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> I mean, I didn't physically build it, but sure, sure. <laughs> but I had to uh, re approve all the plans and the welds and everything. So it, it was a lot of fun, um, and building pump stations, you know, in people's backyards, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, and and acquiring easements uh, that that was a big challenge because I had to do a lot of that. Uh, every pipeline requires easements of some kind. Now, sometimes there's already existing easements. And all you're doing is upgrading some pipes, but you know now you got to go in and notify the resident. Oh, by the way, there's this 20-foot-wide easement running through your backyard. It's got a pipe about 15 feet deep. Well, uh, we got to dig that up and replace it. <laughs> and they say, "Oh, <laughs> what kind of mess is that going to create?" Well, it's going to create a big mess. And here, you know, some of them, some of their backyards, they got these big swing sets and all this kind of stuff for their kids out there. We had to. <laughs> We had to move all those things. <laughs> right. And then once the ditch was dug and the pipe was laid and, and the back backfill was back in, then we'd have to move the swing set and everything else, you know, back in place. Trampolines and swing sets and, and you know, uh, out storage uh, sheds and so forth that were right in the way. Uh, I mean, they shouldn't have built them on the easement anyway, but they did. And uh, so, but, you know, we, we tried to be as kind as we could and say, well, you know, we'll replace everything that we have to take out of there uh, and try to do it as best we can, you know. But when you pick up a shed that's been sitting there for 20 years <laughs> and try to move it move it aside, <laughs> it, we may kind of rattle it up a little bit, you know. Some things may break or whatever. So, and sometimes that happened, you know. We had things that, that kind of deteriorated as we try to handle them. But it, but it was all part of kind of working with neighbors, you know, and uh, and knowing that, you know, these are real people that you're affecting their lives of. And uh, so I, I found that to be a, a very rewarding part of my career. You know, all, all the rest of the stuff, uh, working for Navy Nuclear Work, that was exciting and all that, but it never felt like you were doing something personally for somebody, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was, although you were trying to, you know, conserve lives, I mean, we wanted to make sure everything was built so that no sailor would ever die as a result of, uh, of some mistake you made or whatever. But, um, 
Yeah, but still not the same connection, right? No, it's not. Yeah, when you get get down into the personal level stuff, uh, deal with people, you know, uh, where where their shower drains go and their when their their toilet drains and all that, they don't want to know about it. (laughs) They just think, you know, if they don't see it, it's okay with them. But when they, you start digging, digging up their backyard and, and asking them for permission to do new things in their backyard, they, they sometimes hesitate. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, that's, that's when it takes, you know, kind of a personal approach to, to things. Because, you know, you can put yourself into their, their shoes. Uh, it's a very simple thing. At any rate, uh, I'm, I'm thinking that that's pretty much the end of my career opportunities anyway. Because I... I retired from the community, or the community, from the from the Summit County uh, Environmental Services in, uh, I think it was December of 2004. That's what I wrote down here, anyway. Um, yeah. So I, that was that was the last time I worked full time for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And that's a long time ago. So. I don't know if I got anything more to add to it. Yeah, that's uh, we, all right. We're, we're kind of coming up on a little over an hour here. We yeah, can, right. Uh, we are. <laughs> wrap it up for the day. I'll uh, I'll shoot you an email with some more questions. Uh, okay. I might have to work Saturday, so I'll have to keep you posted. On, oh yeah. It'd probably be Saturday or Sunday though, um, for for a call if you've got time. So. Oh yeah. Well, I, I usually do on either either Saturday or Sunday, so those okay. are good days for me. But. Uh, Anyway, yeah, it's always a pleasure talking with you, Tom. And I, yeah, well, I, I really enjoy it myself. So I, uh, sometimes I think, uh, you know, I, how much good is this going to do? Right. <laughs> Who, who's going to listen to all this stuff? <laughs> well, hopefully, it'll be all my cousins and you well, know, aunts so, and uncles. Yeah. So yeah, and I hope they, you know, they give a charge out of some of it. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I think they'll really enjoy it. So. Yeah. By the way, I think your your dad and your sister and. And brother, I think are back. They should be back home by now. Yeah, I think they're on their way back. To, I think they get back tonight, maybe. Well, they uh, they were due home today, but I didn't know what time. Yeah, I, I'm I, not sure. I think they might be home by now because uh, I think they were stopping overnight in Charlotte or some, oh, okay. somewhere around there in North Carolina. So and that's only about, uh, I don't know, six, eight hours or something like right, that. Right, right. So, yeah, hopefully they're home soon. <laughs> I'm going to sure, see yeah. them tomorrow night anyway at dinner. I'm going to bring chicken over for dinner tomorrow night <laughs> oh nice nice so hey by the way how are you how are you and ashley doing you, you doing any rock climbing recently yeah well not not recently <laughs> with the weather um no. but yeah we, we've been i've been pretty busy with work uh yeah. we've had a project that's um down in loudonville so it's it's like an hour and 15 minute drive one way for me so it's been making Ooh. for some pretty long days yeah. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But you know, and work's been sort of busy in general. So I've been, I've been definitely staying busy, and Ashley's been, you know, staying busy with her work too. So uh, yeah. You know, but yeah, well, you know, it keeps us out of trouble at least. Uh, but you know, we're hoping things will uh, ease up a little bit in the yeah, next calm, few weeks. Calm down a little. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. Once right. once I get this project wrapped up at work, it won't be too bad. So. Okay. What what kind yeah. of work does Ashley do? Uh, Ashley's a science teacher. Oh, okay. um, so she's she's actually currently teaching from home, um, but she teaches at the Summit County Juvenile Detention Center. I'll be darned. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She works. She she teaches at Dan Street. Well, I've had my, some of my kids over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. So have my parents. Uh, so yeah, yeah. She teaches science there. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. It's a, yeah, it's I, a tough I, job, I keep... but somebody's got to do it. Well, that's true. That's true, and it's it's a good job because you know. There are people who are in desperate need of that kind of help. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, for sure. So, 
Okay, well, listen, it's been very nice talking with you again, Tom. Yeah. And, uh, thanks so much for doing this project. And Oh, absolutely. I, oh. I, I wish I had thought of it sooner. Yeah, well, yeah, before, well, you're doing it before I died anyway. I'm yeah, right. Well, so far, yeah. <laughs> so far, yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. That's sort of like what the guy that fell off the 100-story building, he was <laughs> overheard saying as he passed the 65th floor, so right. far, so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> At any rate. Okay, well, good okay. enough, Tom. You have a All blessed right. day, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, sounds good. Bye. Sure. Take care now. Bye-bye.